Welcome to the Dark Academicals, the podcast where we delve into the mythos of dark academia, one book at a time. I'm Sophie Waters. And I'm Sarah Purnell. Today, we're going to be looking at The Secret History by Donna Tartt. The Secret History is the classic and the original dark academia novel, recounting Richard Papen's time at the exclusive liberal arts college, Hampton College, in rural Vermont. When California-born Richard joins the college, he becomes enamoured with the wealthy, privileged class of the Greek students and their charismatic teacher secluded at the top of the school. Once invited into the fold, Richard joins Henry, an enigmatic genius, the loud, coarse bunny, sweet, fragile Francis and unnervingly close twins Charles and Camilla on a path to murder and ruin. The Secret History was Donna Tartt's debut novel, published in September 1992. The novel took eight years to write and is thought to be inspired by her years at the prestigious liberal arts college, Bennington College, which is also in Vermont. So before we dive into the analysis of the novel, we're going to do a quick recap on the kind of selling points of what a dark academia novel is. We did go through all of this in our introduction episode, which you can find wherever you have found this episode, which will go through all of the the points in a little bit more detail but we're just going to run through them quickly just as a quick reminder before we dive into the novel. And there are going to be spoilers throughout. If you haven't read The Secret History but intend to, I recommend going and picking up a book, reading, and then coming back because, you know, there are going to be spoilers throughout. No holds barred here. These are the points of Dark Academia that we're going to be looking at. In our last episode, we detailed a few uh, key elements that we feel make up a Dark Academia title. Now, for most dark academia titles that we actually look at in this uh, podcast they won't necessarily have all of these but they'll have some the thing about the secret history is because it is the seminal text it's got pretty much all of them tick 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 across the board really isn't it (laughs) yeah it's kind of what we've based our parameters of dark academia around and that's why it's our first novel because every book is going to be jumped off from the novel so the list looks as follows we have a higher education setting old gothic imposing architecture a preoccupation with classical studies murder a dark moody slash haunting vibe old money particularly when it clashes against new money or no money, hero worship, weather, and a character as an outsider looking in. And a secret history has got them all. (laughs) Before we launch into that, I think this is a good opportunity to discuss any general observations that we have about the book before we start picking it apart more closely. I mean, for me, I mean, it's cerebral right out of the gate. Yeah, right from the jump. (laughs) No, one of the first thing Richard says is, does such a thing as a fatal flaw that showy dark crack running down the middle of a life exists outside of literature. Like, And that kind of sets the tone, doesn't it, for the discussions between the characters and the focus and the, the structure yeah. of the novel. Like, I was kind of looking up the fatal flaw within literature and it's something called Hamasha. I think mm-hmm. that's how you say it, associated with Greek tragedy, yeah. which can be interpreted as a character flaw or an error in judgment, which I also think is really interesting in regards to all the characters in The Secret History. Yeah, because they very clearly all have one, and it, it does kind of bring apart, bring them apart at the end, doesn't it? Yeah, and they and all definitely clearly. have an error in judgment. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple, some would say. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting as well in terms of tying in the connections to... The Greeks. It's not just a, a placeholder like the 
the presence of the ancient Greeks and classics, it's not just there, it's an intrinsic part of the story and the characters, isn't it? It's it's woven yeah. into the entire book. Yeah. And then um, if you ever wanted a definition of the aesthetic for Dark Academia, I found it for you on page 10. <laughs> so firstly, he goes, Radiant meadows, mountains vaporous in the trembling distance, leaves ankle deep on a gusty autumn road, bonfires and fog in the valleys, cellos, dark window panes, snow. It's, just... it's basically a mood board for Pinterest for <laughs> yeah. Dark Academia. And then he even goes on to say, It was suffused with a weak academic light. A light that makes me think of long hours in dusty libraries and old books and silent. If it wasn't the beginning of Dark Academia, you'd think that Donatar had sat there and gone, tick, tick, tick. <laughs> like, but actually, she was just establishing the genre, so it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that kind of leads us on nicely into looking at the higher education setting in the novel. Yes. One of the first things that struck me, and this is really obvious, okay, but it's like it became so clear where the social media aesthetic came from in this kind of nostalgia for old academia. Just in the way that they dress and in the way that they conduct their academics... Obviously, it's set in the 80s, so... Well, it's never, like, explicitly stated that it's set in the 80s, but there are lots of, like, drip-fed notions, and it's kind of generally accepted that it's set in the mid-80s. mid, mid 80s. So they don't have mobile phones, they don't have laptops, they don't have computers. They and... hardly even have a television. No, because they have to go and get it from the attic, don't they, of, of Monmouth House, where which is Richard's dorm, so they can go and watch yeah. the news when they're trying to look up. Well, no, no, they have one. I think they have one in, in Monmouth House, don't they? It's it's They go and get the TV set from Francis's, on the top, from the attic in Francis's. Oh, is it? Apartment. Oh, okay. Mm. But even so, I think the TV is described as something... Like it's not, you see Bunny watching it, which makes sense for Bunny. But for the rest of them, television and even they're even quite disdainful of cinema. Even like technology is not it for them. No, like they use um, like glass pens and ink pots. Yeah, like they're not they're not in general use, and they wear big great coats and fine suits and blazers with elbow pads and wool coats, and it's just. That's the aesthetic in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, putting the weak academic light over the top and you've got a perfectly set up Instagram shot that is pure dark <laughs> academia. And I think because I've... The last time I read this book, I looked back in my records, was 2017. So TikTok didn't exist. Yeah, same. In 2017. Mine was 2017. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, Instagram was around, but I don't remember dark academia being a thing in the same way so it was it was really interesting to reread it with that kind of social media knowledge of it yeah but i think it it almost makes it a bit timeless and yet it still thoroughly dates it yeah it's a weird combination it's like suspended in time isn't it this campus and i guess that's also reflected in one of the other big signposts of old gothic architecture i mean i don't know a huge amount about <laughs> like that kind of architecture in America but it's a lot more common here <laughs> than it is yeah. in America because America's so much newer but I think um some of the settings themselves kind of take on characters of their own 
which mm. is in the gothic tradition isn't it and, oh um, absolutely there's definitely a gothic undercurrent to how certain things are described so uh the commons clock tower ivied brick white spine spellbound in the hazy distance like yeah, that's, it's very, very gothic, gothic even it? if the actual structure itself isn't gothic yeah but even in um france's country house as well and we don't actually really know much about the building other than that it's huge and very ornate <laughs> inside lots of rooms and secret passages again very gothic it makes and... me think of the adams family house oh yeah that's true i can see that i can definitely see that and also with like the country house it's the things that happen at that house that makes it gothic too yeah and the kind of spell that's woven over them while they're there it's almost like a like a microcosm of summer isn't it like that ideal summer that is like a perpetual summer at francis's country house yeah, endless summer, which even though you know it's not summer, feels like summer. Yeah, because it's actually set in in the fall, isn't it? When they when they spend a long time at the house. Yeah, I, there's even a um, they even mention Bunny going around saying that the snow is falling, like going from bed to bed, from room to room, saying that the snow is falling. But it still doesn't feel like it's winter or like late autumn. It feels like summer. <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of slow, languid, lazy summer, which is a very romantic idea, isn't it? It's all very romantic, isn't it, at the, mm. at the country house? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a part of like classical studies as well, and Greek and ancient Roman and Latin philosophy all kind of ties up together. Yeah. There's um when Richard and Julian are talking... Um, it's early on when um, Richard is explaining to Julian the California that actually doesn't really apply to Richard, but is that a romanticised movie movie version of California. And um, Julian calls California romantic. And um, Richard kind of <laughs> going back to his own experience of California says, if by romantic you mean solitary and introspective, I said, I think romantics are frequently the best classicists. Which I think is, it's just really nice kind of merging of that wistful whirling away the afternoons discussing ancient Greeks. <laughs> yeah. But also quite a different way of looking at classics because later on it kind of turns that completely on its head and says, for if the modern mind is whimsical and discursive, the classical mind is narrow, unhesitating and relentless so they kind of just they use it for whatever <laughs> they want it to be <laughs> like they're studying it for their own purposes aren't they yeah which is definitely something we're going to talk about <laughs> a bit later on with the uh just the back now you know no no biggie <laughs> just that wee small thing that happens that changes their lives yeah just that pivotal <laughs> moment in the book <laughs> that fascination with the classics and the classical world leads to murder as it does <laughs> i mean there was a lot of murder in uh ancient greek mythology i'm not saying that that that's a good excuse to indulge in it yourself <laughs> it seems but... to be for them doesn't it so well if they did it why can't we yeah but it, it was accidental as far as we know yeah well yeah the first one was yeah the first one obviously <laughs> yeah yeah, the second one, not so much. That was definitely premeditated. I mean, uh, I mean technically, is there three murders because of the dog as well? Yeah. Deaths. There's also, remind us, if you have not read the book, 
spoilers henry when henry um commits suicide at the end yeah. that's a very classical move isn't it it is it's that kind of greek tragedy ending for henry which is kind of the the arc he goes on doesn't he definitely yeah with that uh with those murders <laughs> and that <laughs> setting of a weak academic light you can't escape the dark moody vibe that permeates the most of the novel because it's set in winter most of it isn't it all of the the pivotal bits are set in winter or during snowstorms. Hmm. I mean, Richard's narrative voice, is he's very morose, isn't he? He's very disdainful of a lot of things. Yeah. Um, he doesn't elicit much joy about anything, really. Even though yeah. he's just been accepted into essentially the college of his dreams, he's like, eh. Basically, he gets what he wants and then doesn't really know what to do with it. <laughs> I think if, if anyone hasn't listened to the audiobook of The Secret History, then I definitely urge urge you to because Donna Tartt's reading of it, I think, takes it to the, to another level entirely. Yeah, yeah. Donna Tartt brings that book alive. It was the, the way I first experienced Secret History. Yeah. And the second, I think. <laughs> Hero worship of a particular figure or author is another big... Um, big element of dark academia and i think there's a few different versions of hero worship in secret history you've got julian who is their teacher in the greek class you've got kind of greek civilization just as a whole they kind of hero worship that time don't they dionysus yeah and henry henry definitely and what i find really interesting is how all of those things crumble throughout the novel. Like this hero worship brings them to this point of murder and the excuse to do so. And then from there, it just falls apart and they begin to realise like these figures who they've worshipped are actually just humans. True. I don't think though, by the end, for especially for uh, Richard and Camilla, that that hero worship will ever go away. Because of Henry's actions. Yeah, he kind of, he martyred himself, didn't he? He became that that figure of, oh, he did this to save us. Yeah. Whereas Julian, I think, while there's affection, because Julian left them, he didn't, you know, he just fled and left them to deal with everything when it was his class, his teachings, and his kind of pushing of this narrative of the interest in the Bacchanal. But pushed them into beginning this yeah because there's even a point where i think it's can't remember whether it's henry or francis one of them says oh you know julian's perfectly aware of what we're trying to do and he thinks it's a great idea (laughs) as any sane normal teacher would obviously (laughs) they put so much stock in him as this figure of mystery i said it on the last episode and i'll say it again he just needs to go to prison that one (laughs) but he's so detached he doesn't he purposefully doesn't get involved in any tangible way that he is culpable yeah he's just this overriding influence and taking on this paternal figure for all of them when none of them really have a paternal figure in their lives they're all essentially orphans yeah and he takes on that role and he takes advantage of it but the difference is is most of them have a lot of money (laughs) <laughs> leads in, they may be orphans but yes. they're not poor orphans which leads into the 
old money versus new money versus no money mm-hmm. uh, aspect. Um, I mean, Richard very early on says, money, you see, was the only way to improve my fortune. There's this passage earlier on. It's a, well, it's a conversation between Bunny and Richard where Richard kind of lies about where his money f- is from. And it's just... I don't know why, but I love this conversation. I'm just going to read it to you quickly. So they're talking about um, Henry and um, Henry's wealth. And it starts, Family's got money like you wouldn't believe. Millions and millions. Course is about as new as it come. But a buck's a buck, know what I mean? He winked. By the way, meant to ask, how does your pop earn his filthy lucre? Oriel, I said, it was partly true. Bunny's mouth fell open in a little round O. You have oil wells? Well, we have one, I said modestly, but it's a good one, so they tell me. Boy, said Bunny, shaking his head, the Golden West. It's been good to us, I said. Jeez, Bunny said, my dad's just a lousy old bank president. And I think that that really establishes like the status attached to certain types of money. Yeah. Because, I mean, it becomes clear very early on that the Corcorans don't actually have any money. No. They pretend they have money and they've kind of been accepted into that class status because they're good at pretending and they're good at ripping people off. <laughs> but the second Richard says, oh yeah, I've got oil money. That's it. it. Everything that Bunny thinks about Richard changes in that in that way there. It kind of makes sense why he's a little bit secretive because that's some serious cash. <laughs> And I think he he gains a little bit of respect for him then. I think that's probably why Bunny initially hangs on to him so hard is because he's like, Mm -hmm. this guy's got some money. How much can I squeeze out of him? But I mean, it is interesting when you see the different kinds of money that each of them have. So Francis, rich as you like, like there is literally Mm -hmm. no, it's a bottomless pit of money and it's old money. Whereas Henry has a lot of money but it's newer money. And it's also kind of drip fed to him. He doesn't have access to it all. It's yeah. kind of, it's still controlled by his dad that gives him a monthly allowance. And then Camilla and Charles, who are, I mean, I don't want to say they're poor, but in by rich people standards, they don't have any, they have assets, but I don't think they have access to cash. I yeah. think that's how I understand Definitely. their situation. Yeah, I think so. Because they say a lot that they're poor, but we don't really get much expansion on that yet they fly all over the place and they never want for anything so no i mean do they ever really find out that richard is just dirt poor i don't think they do do they really i imagine they probably know i think it would be hard to not know it's just it's just never you'd think it would be something especially bunny if he caught wind of it would love to rub in rub in his face i reckon henry probably realized when he um found him freezing to death in that shack because i know like henry plays it off as like oh you're so proud you won't ask for anything even though your dad won't give you anything and you end up nearly freezing to death and we're just like yeah well don't like to ask (laughs) you know (laughs) he must notice that his clothes aren't as expensive as his you know he doesn't doesn't have these things. Speaking of freezing to death, we can now talk about the weather. It's one of my favourite topics. Sarah's favourites. <laughs> I love the weather in the secret history. Like I think it is used uh, as a literary device expertly. Mm. Yeah, I mean the very first line: "The snow in the mountains was melting, and Bunny had been dead for several weeks before we came to understand the gravity of our situation." 
what an opening line. <laughs> like, I love it. I love it so much. It ca- it tells you so much. It does. In that well, first sentence. Really interesting is by the time you get to the point that Bunny has died and the snow has come, you kind of forget. Even though you know what's coming, you still, I don't know, you know you know it because she told you in the first sentence and yet you, yeah. it's still surprising. Do you know why? Because I think there's there's no emotion in that. This is the beginning of Richard telling him his story and he's like, yeah, we killed someone, but until, you know, he'd been missing for 10 days and there were state troopers questioning us, we didn't realise how serious it was. It was all the snow's fault. It's the stupid snow's fault. It wasn't our fault. I think it, it says a lot about Richard as a narrator that I definitely didn't pick up on the first couple of times I read this. I learned a lot about Richard in this reread. So did I. And they're not good things. Yes, then he goes on to say, and it might have been left at that, at quiet tears and a small funeral, had it not been for the snow that fell that night. Again. Not been for the pesky snow. (laughs) (laughs) Blaming the weather, kind of like a... It's almost like that Scooby-Doo, like, would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those damn kids. Exactly. (laughs) It's that kind of attitude. or It's like, they had a perfect plan, and nature ruined it. But, I mean, the snow did nearly kill Richard, so I guess he, he has some reason to be slightly annoyed at it. And he actually says, like, And though I bounced back quickly in a short-term sense, in another, I never really quite got over that winter. I've had problems with my lungs ever since. And my bones ache at the slightest chill, and I catch cold easily now, where I never used to. Oh, poor Richard. It's one of those, is it, like, is, I know. I just realise he's just getting old. Like, sorry, mate, this just happens <laughs> when you get old. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it leads into that point of Richard being the outsider looking in. Like he could not be more of an outsider uh, without. Yeah. It, he could. He, he might as well just be wearing a t-shirt that says "Yo, I'm the outsider" because. <laughs> yeah. And he knows it too. He he. I think he mentions it quite often, doesn't he? That he. He does. Yeah. He says, "I didn't have many friends, but whether this was due to choice or circumstance, I do not now know." But I think as well, like. <laughs> The students at Hampton College are outsiders in the town of Hampton. Yeah. They're this, like, little island on their own, aren't they? Whenever they go into the town, they're looked upon differently. They're frowned upon. And there's that whole scene after the murder where they're kind of worrying about it, where they're talking about they don't want to be tried in Vermont because they are hated by the locals and they'll string them up. (laughs) And like, I think he even says at some point, like, um, and it's not, if we were trial here, it wouldn't be a jury of our peers. And he yeah. says something about um, a group of like telephone operators or something. Mm. Like he immediately belittles them as if they can't make logical decisions or if they can't condemn them for murder because of the job, the working class jobs that they see as below them that make them as people not worthy of their attention. As someone who went to university that was a two-university city, I know that the locals can get a little bit annoyed. Yeah, I mean, same <laughs> at students. However, saying that, if you think how much money those kids at Hampton College have and how much money they must be spending around in the town, like it, they're annoying, yeah. but surely they must welcome the cash flow yeah because i mean like to be fair it must be quite hateful 
like watching them swan around while you're struggling i'd put my prices up (laughs) yeah next we're going to talk about some of the criticisms and um closer interpretations of isolated elements within the book so i think the first logical place to start would be with the title itself i think this title can be interpreted in lots and lots of different ways yeah definitely and didn't you say as well it wasn't actually the original the original title no, the original title was The God of Illusions. I think that works just as well, it does. to be honest. Um, and then from the forward of chapter six, it says, Dionysus is the master of illusions who could make a vine grow out of a ship's plank and in general enable his votaries to see the world and how the world is not. The title kind of reflects in the in the novel really clearly and in like the that kind of elite area of academics that they're existing in. So I see that title as this is a secret history of what happened during their time at Hampton. But there's also the secret history of these characters in this time at Hampton that's even secret from Richard. Yeah. And like the unravelling of this ancient Greek civilization that they're studying. There's so many quotes in the book, in Greek, in Latin, in French... And a lot of them aren't even translated. Mm. So it kind of alienates the reader and kind of like, you're not in this club either. Yeah. But it's also kind of, it accentuates that whole secret history. It's theirs, not yours. Mm. But I'm still going to tell you about it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's also like, he circles, Richard's narration, he circles around lots of stuff, but he's very reluctant to give grisly details. Yeah. Like, he doesn't actually tell us. Like, we don't see on page um, Bunny's death. No. We see Bunny's face kind of realise what's about to happen and then book one ends and book two starts. And that's Richard saying, you know, I think it's him talking about whether he's a horrible person or not. We don't actually see see the murder. And the same with the Bacchanal. We don't see that on stage because that's not Richard's story because he's not privy to that. Yeah. So much of the other guy's lives and experiences at Hampton, he's excluded from. Yeah. So they're very much keeping him on the side of the story and kind of, he's there, but he's not a part of them. Again, like reflecting back his outsider status, really. Yeah. I did start translating a lot of the Greek and Latin and French. Um, I don't think there's Greek so much because that's not very friendly to a printer yeah but the latin and the french and i'm not even going to try and pronounce it but my favorite one is francis and it's one of the first things he says to richard and i think my first time i read read the secret history i didn't bother translating anything so it just went over my head i mean you kind of get you always get like the gist of something as in like you get the tone of something but you never until you actually translate some of these phrases, you get a whole new meaning. Like Francis yeah. propositions Richard in Latin with what is essentially, shall we go to bed? Or like Especially the French, as, will you yeah. go to bed with me? And Richard doesn't speak Latin. No. <laughs> so he doesn't even know. <laughs> I think there's lots of situations as well throughout the novel where when they're in the company of other people, they talk in Greek or Latin to each other. It's like when you're kids no one else and you talk sounds. in pig Latin, isn't it? 
or something. Yeah. <laughs> or you make a code. <laughs> yeah. And then the one that really I found really interesting as well was it's in like the first paragraph of the of chapter one. And it says, A moi, l'histoire d'une demoe de mes folies. Sorry, French. <laughs> um, which means, well, I, I had to look up the translation because the literal translation works. But if you have a more scholar, scholarly translation, like for the, because it's from um, Rimbaud's A Season in Hell. Okay. And it's more agreed that the more correct translation would be my turn, the tale of my madness. Ooh. Which I think is really interesting. That is interesting, because I guess that's essentially what this novel is, isn't it? Yeah. They all go a little bit mad. First couple of times I read this book, I listened to it on audio, so I didn't really do any of the translations. And this time I reread it on my Kindle. And understandably, the Kindle dictionaries don't have Latin and ancient Greek <laughs> in in their, um, in their little, Funny that. little Kindle brains. <laughs> And it's obviously just a very literal translation. And then I ended up taking a bit of a deep dive into the secret history, the title itself, which <laughs> led me into Procopius's The Secret History, which is a text from the mid-500s. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> As you do. So and on the back... Really proud. <laughs> so I bought... <laughs> because again, of course I did. I bought the Penguin Classics Edition. And on the back, it says that the secret history by Procopius, it depicts a holy Byzantium as a hell of murder and misrule. And that's on the back of the book, which, and there are a lot of references within secret history to Byzantine or Byzantium ways of thinking or, yeah, yeah, there's always something they'll be like, oh, that's very Byzantine of you. And so the secret history by Procopius concerns four characters plus Procopius, who is the court historian. Um, it was the book he could never hope to publish in his lifetime because it was very critical of the figures of authority that were around him. And I think that the characteristics of a lot of the people uh, within Procopius's book represent uh, the excess and the elitist behaviours that we see with the characters in The Secret History. And I tried to kind of marry them up so there's four characters there's emperor justinian theodora belisarius and and antonina and i tried to marry them up with the characters in donatarts the secret history it doesn't quite work but if you take the characteristics of each of those characters, it sort of works. In particular, Emperor Justinian, it even goes as far as to describe him as being demonically possessed. Oh. So there is one quote where it says, And some of those who were present with the emperor late at night, men of the highest possible character, thought they saw a strange demonic form taking his place. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really interesting, because when Julian says of the Dionysian worshippers, that the revelers were apparently hurled back into a non-rational, pre-intellectual state where the personality was re- replaced by something completely different, not mortal, inhuman. And I think they do they do talk about that a bit when they're reflecting on the Bacchanal, don't they? They think they saw Dionysus. Yes. Henry definitely thinks he saw Dionysus. Yeah. And Emperor Justinian is described as cruel, venal, prodigal and incompetent. I feel like Henry may have possessed me a little bit whilst I was going down this rabbit hole because (laughs) I could probably write a dissertation on this at this point. 
but there are descriptions which say he was dissembling, crafty, hypocritical, secretive by temperament, two-faced, with a marvellous ability to conceal his real opinion. So it's really easy to get these two mixed up because they are literally the same person. You know, it says he had little need of sleep and his appetite for food and drink was unusually small. Such things seemed to him an irrelevance. Like, well, who does that sound like? <laughs> and like Henry is such a big hulking guy, which I forget. Yeah. Like when I'm reading, I don't picture him like that. I think uh, Richard comments on that, doesn't he? He says yeah. that people often forget, and that's part of the uh, persona that Henry puts forward. He puts. For- yeah. I don't know how do you do that though. How do you present yourself as someone that's not a giant when you're a giant? I think he does mention like the way he dresses and the way he speaks. It's very cultivated and very general. It's unthreatening, isn't it? Unless you know him. Yeah. <laughs> or unless he decided, decides to let the mask slip and then just run. Yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> and not one to shy away from other rabbit holes. I'm not really a fan of philosophy in its raw form. Like I find mm. it dry. I find it very male. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it Definitely. doesn't really take the female experience into into consideration very often so i think that's why i often struggle with it a little bit however um i think the birth of tragedy by nietzsche is uh important to the secret history or to the uh, an understanding or interpretation of secret history yeah i agree i think it's it kind of explores that um dionysian and the Apollonian, yeah. the kind of order and logic versus irrationality and chaos, essentially. Yeah, and it's that the duality of those. How you need to embrace both to become a yeah. more complete version of yourself. Yeah, to like balance to achieve yeah. balance, you need both of those. I think that's interesting when applied to the secret history because it's. I think it's very much like the two halves of the books. I think that's something you mentioned, wasn't it? Yeah. We were talking like it's... So Apollonian is order and logic. Dionysian is obviously the the chaos. <laughs> and the chaos is definitely in the second half of the book. <laughs> it just... Yeah. It, it descends. <laughs> and they all fall that way. And it's it starts with the Bacchanal, but it doesn't... That divide isn't really present until Bunny is pushed down the ravine. Yeah. Yeah, and they're kind of... I know Nietzsche talks about them, them battling for dominance... And I think Henry is kind of the epitome of that. I so I think so. in him, it's like the order and logic of academia versus this desire. He wants to stop his brain. He just wants to feel. And that's that kind of letting go. And it's that constant battle in Henry. Yeah. I want to say everyone's met a Henry, but that's not true. Because if you've, you've met a Henry, you wouldn't know you've met a Henry, for one. No. But he's just very typical of a very intense scholarly type people who have that that singular focus. Yeah, and there's that that kind of that potential for a trigger point. Yeah, that when they go off, they go off. They're all quite scared of him when he goes off. Yeah. Rightly so, because we know what he's capable of. <laughs> but someone passing him in the halls isn't going to know that. I think that leads us nicely onto talking about the bacchanal, which is kind of the the first turning point in the novel really isn't it yeah so when they're out of 
Francis's country house, something they've been trying to replicate, is the Bacchanal. And it there's very limited information on what the Bacchanal actually was in ancient times. We know that it was part of the Roman festival of Bacchus, and it's thought to originate from a Roman cult. But little is actually known about the rituals and rites. So this is something that Henry, Camilla, Charles and Francis are trying to recreate without really knowing what it entailed. Hmm. But they, they know it when it happened. I think interestingly, there are some sources that suggest the Bacchanal um, started as a female only kind of celebration. That connects with like the the main ad. Yeah. The men generally take it for themselves. And they, they brought in drink, they brought in lots of sex, they brought in probably mushrooms that made them see strange things. Like Yeah, because yeah, there's a bit where they're... I think it's when Henry is explaining to Richard what happens. He was like, the first couple of tries, we just got so drunk, drugged up that we passed out. Um, but they never actually say what they did, no. other than some unfortunate sacrifices. Yeah, and they had to like fast for like three days before, which yeah, they found Again. out that Bunny wasn't doing. <laughs> but I think like the we never really know what happened. We get hints, we get a brief explanation, but most of the discussion around it is what they were trying to achieve. Yeah, we never know how it happened. We just know what happened after. <laughs> we know the yeah. aftermath. Yeah, there are there are hints, isn't it? But Henry says. After all, the appeal to stop being yourself, even for a little while, was very great. To escape the cognitive mode of experience, to transcend the accident of one's moment of being. There are other advantages, more difficult to speak of, things which ancient sources only hint at, and which I myself only understood after the fact. It's kind of like, almost like like a religious awakening. Yeah. Is how he That's what he's it. hoping for. I'd be very interested to see, or to know what the others were hoping for because I I mean Bunny I think he was just going along with it because yeah. like how dare you leave me out but I can't imagine he really understood what they were doing no I like oh. the bit where um Richard's found out about it and he's he almost gets preoccupied with with the actual acts themselves he's like mm. basically he he asks uh, Henry outright like well did you have sex like what happened mm. and Henry's like oh yeah yeah that happened but more importantly <laughs> Yeah, and again, when he's talking to Charles about it, Charles said, there was a certain carnal element to the proceedings, but the phenomenon was basically spiritual in nature. It's very kind of like, we did some dodgy things, so we're just going to skip right past that, pretend that didn't happen. That's Charles all over, though, because as we find out later that that he slept with Francis upon occasion, but it's not, like for him, it'd be like, oh, well, it just happened, he was there. Or he conveniently doesn't remember in the morning. Yeah, yeah. So like those kind of details are, is it is described as a heady kind of life changing experience, but no one actually remembers or is willing to admit that they remember what happened. I mean, it's Which quite is... clear that Camilla is traumatised after Oh, it. absolutely, yeah. And she doesn't speak for days. No, God knows what they took, <laughs> to be fair. But then again, there's this um this passage from Charles when he describes describes it which i'm just going to read quickly because i think it's it's a really beautiful passage and this is probably the biggest explanation we get of the bacchanal it was heart-shaking glorious 
torches dizziness singing, wolves howling around us and a bull bellowing in the dark. The river ran white. It was like a film in fast motion, the moon waxing and waning, clouds rushing across the sky. Vines grew from the ground so fast they twined up the trees like snakes. Seasons passing in the wink of an eye, entire years for all I know. I mean, we think of phenomenal change as being the very essence of time, when it's not at all. Time is something which defies spring and winter, birth and decay, the good and the bad, indifferently. Something changeless and joyous and absolutely indestructible. Duality ceases to exist. There is no ego, no I, and yet it's not at all like those horrid comparisons one sometimes hears in Eastern religions, the self being a drop of water swallowed by the ocean of the universe. It's more as if the universe expands to fill the boundaries of the self. You have no idea how pallid the workday boundaries of ordinary existence seem after such an ecstasy. It was like being a baby. I couldn't remember my name. The soles of my feet were cut to pieces and I couldn't even feel it. So it's that kind of like euphoric, just pure escape, which I find interesting for a bunch of people who are so wealthy and are so privileged and they have the whole world at their feet, but they, they just take it for granted and mostly just piss it away. Yeah, it's like, well, we've got this, so where else can I go? For, it's for a lot of people that aren't with the same privilege, it's like, well, if I had the same amount of money, I'd be able to do this and this but when you've got that amount of money the it's it's like a hierarchy of needs isn't it? it's like i've got mm. this well what's next like what else can i aspire to mm. it's like the earthly plane is no longer enough yeah <laughs> whereas richard at the beginning of the novel that that goal that seemingly unattainable thing that the bacchanal is for henry is going to hampton college yeah and then it's getting into the greek class and then staying there, he's the only one that goes to complete his degree. Because yeah. there's a, a point in the novel where he says, the others can go and do what they want, but I can't. Like, I can't afford another year. I can't yeah. afford to go to another school. This has ripped up my transcript. No one will have but, me. Yeah, I mean, even Henry, they've got two weeks left and Henry's like, oh, doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, well, you need to finish your degrees. Like, I don't need to finish anything. He's a 10th grade high school dropout yes and it's like because he didn't take the SATs because he doesn't like taking tests yeah <laughs> Mind- oh is it- he has an aesthetic objection to tests imagine the luxury <laughs> of that yeah <laughs> I mean, like, me too mate so we're going to talk a little bit about like the misogyny and the treatment of women in the novel we are going to touch upon this a little bit more in depth with regard to Richard when we um speak about him specifically in a little bit but I just wanted to talk a little bit about the way that Bunny torments Camilla specifically in in his attacks on each each member of the gang after the murder so after they all murdered the farmer Bunny finds out and he kind of takes it upon himself to attack each of them in like that specific way that he knows affects them the most and because Camilla is a woman, he goes at that. <laughs> and the rest of them pretty much, although not as obviously and not as violently in some respect, she gets the poor end of the stick, doesn't she? She does. They attribute stereotypically male characteristics to her as a kind of like, well, this is why she's survived in, you know, in our friend group. Yeah. There's even a, po- a point where Richard says... 
Being the only female in what was basically a boys club must have been difficult for her. Miraculously, she didn't compensate by becoming hard or quarrelsome. As if oh, that's good like for her. <laughs> I know. As if that's like a natural reaction for a woman. Like if if something gets difficult, well she's going to become a pain in the ass. I mean, the boys club reference is really interesting because uh the Lyceum which is mm. Julian's temple of yes. education. Ancient Greek Lyceum was a school of philosophy founded by Aristotle. So it was essentially an ancient Greek gymnasium, which were places of training and education where only adult male citizens were allowed. Yeah, and I think that that's reflected in just like the study of Greek as well. And it's, it's a very male-dominated um, field. I think the Odyssey... The first translation by a woman was only a few years ago. Um, Emily, I can't remember, but I mean that book is what two thousand years old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably not that long, but it's a very male-dominated field in all areas, and she's—it's almost miraculous that she's there and can hold her own to them. Like, and that's what makes her acceptable, that she does have those reputable qualities. She is academic. She's beautiful. She's waspish. But she can also drink like the boys. Yeah, I th- it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think I've got some, some points on, on this later where Richard, uh, kind of how he beholds her, but she is allowed into the boys club as long as she acts like a boy but doesn't look like a boy but also like you know it's it there's always there's always a caveat to everything it's like everyone has to be careful around camilla everyone has to take care of her yes there's definitely a a paternal aspect to how they treat camilla a lot of the time which i mean it could be a lot worse but it definitely yeah. could be a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that there are very few female characters in the book. She doesn't really have... She doesn't have friends outside of um, the boys. She doesn't have... You know, it's not like when you see Judy Poovy and her friends. I think you said that Judy is one of the few characters that is just consistently and openly herself. Yes. And even when she's shamed for it, Often by Richard, she just carries on because she knows who she is and she's got those those female friends that back yeah. her up on that and allow her to exist in that space. And Camilla doesn't have that. and she The women have done a real disservice in this novel. The few of them that there are. But I think as well, though, it's, it makes an interesting talking point because this is what it is still like for a lot of women in these elite higher education settings yep absolutely and i think that kind of falls quite nicely into something i noticed while reading is the incompetence of the teachers and they're all male white old you know like it's generally accepted that dr roland is not entirely lucid most of the time julian is well there's a lot to say about julian we'll come to there that there is a <laughs> there's a doctor blend that's mentioned and he's kind of known that his classes are impossible that no one actually understands anything and there's another professor i can't remember his name but one of the main tenants of his um 
of his class is at the end of the semester, they have a big fire pit party where everyone smokes pot. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's only one accessible teacher at that place, and that's the French yeah. lecturer. But even he's not quite all there, is he? Talking no, about his if enemies. Had, <laughs> if you had to pick one. Yeah, if you had to pick one. He's always talking he's about always, his enemies out to get him, and he's always like, "Shh, don't tell anyone that I told you this, <laughs> yeah. because they'll, they'll, they're coming. They'll, they'll have my head. They will." Yeah. <laughs> just, okay, maybe just don't say it then. Don't, yeah, don't say this to to students. <laughs> it's just like, and none of their positions are questioned. They're just accepted. Think, they have tenure, and that's that. Yeah, and again, I think Julian only gets away with it is because he doesn't take a wage. Allegedly, doesn't yeah. take a wage. Is is one dollar so, for tax purposes. <laughs> so the school don't have to. They, they can't even argue that they're paying him for what. It's like, well, they're not paying him. So. Yeah, and I guess they're getting the kids' tuitions, aren't they? Yeah, there's a quote reference from a film, an American film or TV series, and I can't remember what it is, which is very helpful. But it stuck with <laughs> me. It's one of those things that I heard years and years ago, and only. More recently, it's kind of occurred to me how not also how awful, but also how indicative it is of a woman's experience in the, I suppose in the Ivy League, kind of collegiate world, mm. um, and it's just this uh, joke that women uh, go to these Ivy League colleges to get their MRS. What's that? What? Oh, <laughs> wow. I think there's also like the exclusion of non-white, non-acceptably academic topics. Yeah. Because there's, it's, it's like what's worth studying, either, even under classics. Because there's a point where Bunny calls Sanskrit and Coptic nutty languages. But they're, they're ancient languages with you know important texts but they're also non-white languages true and aside from arabic i think arabic is the only one that's ever used isn't it and that's only by henry and it's seen as really strange yeah i mean there is uh, there isn't uh, an undercurrent not even an undercurrent it's overtly racist towards arab cultures again it's a reflection of those kind of small town rural insular mm. views of the world yeah. and um even like henry says at some point that jamaica has no culture and he doesn't want to of course go it does. like what it means is it's not a culture that's that fits his views yes so they go to italy instead there is definitely Wait. a longing like a a, a european longing if that because it i mean because it was supposed to be france the next the next summer wasn't yes, it for yeah. henry and bunny but I, guess... I think that's that's dark academia though as well. There is like a European mm. uh, influence because yeah. a lot of these ancient and classical texts are from Europe. Yeah, I think another thing I noticed with that kind of level of like academic elitism is the fact that Hampton isn't quite what it's sold as. It's highly selective, but somehow Richard manages to get in on a massive scholarship, and even he doesn't even know how that worked. <laughs> I mean, it's a very strange 
college i mean we obviously have a very uh, slim view we kind of see what richard sees and mostly that's his obsession with the greek class mm-hmm. but you get these strange little snippets and tidbits of what else is going on and it's a weird place like why there is the, there's this one one point where I'm not entirely sure, but I think he's watching Henry cut across like some kind of quad type area, and there's just people playing the bongos. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't fit because obviously we see it from again. We're given this dark academia lens, mm. and that there are lots of the culture there that doesn't doesn't fit with with what would be dark academia. Yeah, it's just that we see it from his point of view, which is dark academia. Yeah, and also like the, the drug laboratory in the basement that only <laughs> that gets <laughs> that only gets dismantled after it comes out in the press. The bunny may have had alcohol in his system, and the school's like, "Oh shit, that's our reputation down the toilet." They're like, "Should probably get rid of the drugs lab." <laughs> but until then, perfectly fine. Can you imagine someone who's paying the extortionate liberal arts private college and? Their kids are just doing drugs. I mean, there must have obviously been a lot of people that went to that college that were, I mean, obviously rich, but just middle of the road, doing their thing, leaving, going to work as a lawyer in a bank or something like that. But Richard, you seem to see the two extremes because you've got like the, the highly scholarly Greek class, you know, Julian's protégés and then on the other hand you've got Judy Poovey and then you know the, the group of people she leads him towards which are off their tits half the time yeah <laughs> there's this quote and it's like the alumni magazine was depressing Hampton graduates never seem to do anything after they got out of school but start little ceramic shops in Nantucket or join ashrams in Nepal <laughs> <laughs> like, and this is an elite selective university <laughs> wild as if you make it out alive (laughs) yeah there is that caveat um i think what struck me again about this reread is that uh the representation of queer or just lgbtq plus people is not very good which considering Mm -hmm. half the half the of the main character set are queer or you know not not straight i don't that's no, yeah. That's yeah. probably the best best way to describe it because I don't know how you how you know they would necessarily identify. Uh, identify but yeah. um, there is a lot of hostility towards being mm-hmm. homosexual yeah. or anything other than straight. And I think Bunny is the worst for it, which again we can talk about later when we kind of explore his character a bit yeah. further. But there is still representation. I think it's not fair to say that it does not represent. Uh, LGBTQ plus characters at all because it does in its it own does. way but in in a way that is I suppose realistic to that environment yeah because I mean the characters are very white upper or middle class conservative men yeah you know there's for I just find it funny that it's liberal arts and they're really not very liberal in any way <laughs> at all it's just there's no if you don't fit their idea of what is acceptable or what is correct then you're out you're ridiculed yeah. you are you are open to 
criticism and ridicule and you have to accept that there are things about that you will be kept a secret or whispered about behind your back yes it's not i think like we um we mentioned in the last episode it's not necessarily a positive representation for Mm. people yeah um it definitely shows how suffocating those kind of establishments can be if you are anything other than heteronormative well yeah i mean when we catch up with francis later on in the novel after he's had his little breakdown and he's almost back there but then his grandfather catches him with a man which sends francis into attempting to commit suicide and then he is married off to a woman who he does not like and it's he is forced to marry her or be disinherited and he chooses he chooses Money. to deny himself and not offend himself. It's so unimaginable to be left without money that he deprives himself of love and his identity. And it's just devastating that Francis wasn't in an environment where he was strong enough to, to branch out. I also thought it was interesting how his fiance was presented to us too, because mm. it's it, it's we see her for what a page or two. Yeah, if that. And yet, we just know that it's just not going to work. I mean, they'll they'll have to make it work. But what I mean is that you know that's not going to be a case of like, oh, we might grow to actually like each other. No, no, it's going to be miserable. It's time to shine a light on. I nearly started singing the McFly song then, but I will <laughs> I will save you all from that horror. Um, <laughs> to shine a light on some of the characters um, in the novel in a bit of character analysis and we're going to start we've we've picked two that we're going to really focus on and then we are going to mention a few of the others because there's such a there's so much to say about all of these characters (laughs) it's hard not to but we are going to talk a bit about Richard he is our narrator and I think the portrayal of Richard is really interesting he's very amiable he's very likable he's an ordinary guy that got thrust into this situation that sent him off on a on a strange strange course he's also like a character that you can project yourself onto like he's he's almost a bit of a blank canvas in the beginning isn't he yeah a bit like nick carraway in gatsby richard actually himself (laughs) says i construed certain tragic similarities between gatsby and myself i find it interesting that he puts himself (laughs) as gatsby when to me he's very clearly the nick carraway oh Yes, definitely. I mean, he's one of those people that it feels like he's destined for more. Like this, he's one of those uh, horizon starers, you know, like this can't be it for me. Like I have Mm -hmm. to go out there and find more, which is fine. A lot of people, a lot, a lot of people feel that way and they go out and they follow their dreams and they find new ways of living. I think his outlook as well often can be quite negative towards other people around him. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, he almost looks at other people who are happy with their lot and like you know they're fine like this is it for me this is fine he kind of looks at them with arrogance and almost disgust it's like i have the higher intelligence to understand that there's more to this yeah you know but i think that's really interesting compared to like i was i found this amazing blog post which will be linked in our show notes so you can give it a read but it kind of theorizes that Richard's plainness is tart placing him as the chorus of the Greek tragedy. Mm. Which I thought 
it was really interesting because he's he isn't invited to the bacchanal. He isn't supposed to be there for Bunny's murder. He's just he trying to act- explain it to us. Yeah, he's he's the witness and the storyteller. And he's also the last man standing in a lot of ways. Yeah. He's the legacy of this story because everyone else has, I guess, fallen off their pedestal or died. Oh, died. And I think he also he fell all think, the way off the pedestal. He, yeah, he says um, earlier on in the novel, "I'm gifted at blending myself into any given milieu." You've never seen such a typical California teenager as I was, nor such a dissolute and callous pre-med student. But somehow, despite my efforts, I'm never able to blend m- myself in entirely and remain, in some respects, quite distinct from my surroundings. In the same way that a green chameleon remains a distinct entity from the green leaf upon which it sits, no matter how perfectly it, it has approximated the subtleties of that particular shade. Oh, so he's again, pretentious, he's, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> he's he's saying like I'm an ordinary guy, but I'm also really special. <laughs> So I just I just can't fit in because I am special and I deserve to be part of that that special group. <laughs> That's how it reads to me. On one level, he is this everyman character. But as yeah. you said, he is so desperately reaching. I think he's a great narrator. He's an unreliable narrator, but he's a great yes, absolutely. narrator. And I think the most compelling part of him is that you you do root for him. And you are mm-hmm. on his side, but equally there are plenty of moments that make you go, ew. <laughs> he has some horrifying thoughts and instincts that I hadn't noticed my first couple of reads through this. Yeah. I hadn't noticed that actually in a, in many ways he's just as bad as the others. Yeah. But he is telling us this story. So what we know about him is what he wants us to know about him. Yeah, I mean the big, the biggest thing like we we touched touched upon earlier is this uh, view of women. Mm-hmm. He does not view women for, in a very good light at all. No. Um, I mean, I'll come back to Camilla because she she's a whole different kettle of fish. But <laughs> um, Judy Poovey, Marion, Heather, his ex girlfriend, they're all to him the same insipid annoying characters from yeah. from his perspective like he he talks about them with such disdain and they're just an disgust. annoyance to him aren't they yeah they're almost like in the way yeah judy poovey is constantly in the way of him going to see henry and charles and camilla and francis and i can't he only references his ex-girlfriend like maybe twice doesn't he yeah. and he, yeah. even actually um his girlfriend towards the end of the novel sophie is like oh i did i went along with what she wanted but i knew we weren't gonna last i think he expects someone to bend to whatever he wants and forgets that these women are people and i think that ultimately is what happens with camilla in the end for yeah. him i think camilla the way he talks about her it just astonishes me i think like she all she has to do is exist and he's like, ah, oh, what light from yonder window breaks? <laughs> yeah. It's just the eastern. Camilla is the sun. But Yeah. And yet, like, I can't remember who it is. I think it's Francis who talks about Camilla leading him on. I have a lot of conflicting opinions and feelings about that statement too. Because but... I think to a degree, she does. Yeah. But he I think also me... is complicit in that. He wants yeah. her to. I think Camilla, in this world of men, 
very much plays the game with them to a point that obviously not to a dangerous point but almost to keep her position she gently kind of keeps them all interested in uh, her yes yeah it's almost like she thinks that she has to be an object of desire in order to remain relevant to them and i guess you can't blame her for that that's just her reacting to her yeah it's her reacting to her environment i mean she often described very angelic like she's very Mm. cherubian isn't she however she's also described as having a boy's haircut or her feet are boyish like there's always something about her appearance that he particularly likes about her that's boyish yeah, that's true. I don't really thought about that, actually. I feel like you can read Richard's character as at least very curious about his sexuality. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Whether he's aware of it or not, I think he is. he's attracted to all of them. Yeah. Isn't he? There is something about each of them that attracts him, even if he wouldn't necessarily understand it as a, a romantic or a sexual attraction. Yeah. And I think he... Doesn't he say early on, like... I had nothing in common with these people except maybe Greek class and love or something like that. Mm. Like, he genuinely does love them all and he is attracted to them all. He even really loves Bunny. Yeah. Until Bunny starts torturing them. There's a really interesting quote from page nine where it says, Had I stayed in California, I might have ended up in a cult. (laughs) I can see that. He's very easily led, isn't he? He's so eager to please. So eager to join in. He just moved states and joined a different cult (laughs) yeah basically (laughs) he still joined ended up in a cult yeah the cult of dionysus instead yeah cult of henry winter because he falls under their spell immediately he only wants to join this class because he sees them in the library and is like oh that looks interesting i want to be a part of that he changes his entire degree his entire college schedule he He drops his his wardrobe he changes his everything he just becomes he just mm-hmm. take, he picks up a personality rather than develops one. Yes, because he knows they won't accept him as yeah. a scholarship student. Redeem, oh, I don't know if it's redeemably, but I think he at least doesn't join in with some of the inflammatory statements that some of his friends make. At least he doesn't join in with it, but he he doesn't like right the wrong. Like he, no. if some if when Bunny says something, he'll just either laugh it off or he'll quickly change the subject or yeah. ignore it completely rather than saying, Excuse me, mate, that's probably not the right way of thinking, even though you can tell by the way he's narrating it that he thinks it's not okay. Some of the language that Bunny uses, like we're not even gonna quote it because it's horrendous it's vile. It's absolutely yeah. disgusting. I mean it's mostly um directed at um gay people and people of colour. Yeah. And it's like, although he doesn't go out of his way to challenge how he thinks about it he just accepts that that's what what bunny thinks and it is an opinion that is acceptable to say out loud just want to also quickly say how uh i think i feel like uh richard kind of has his own bacchanal okay of sorts when he's really sick in the winter and he's seeing things that aren't there and he even says himself that that like we mentioned earlier that he doesn't feel like he was the same again afterwards Mm. and whereas henry says that he thinks he saw dionysus for richard the figure that appears for him his god is henry yeah i thought was really interesting like from the very beginning he so desperately wants to be henry he wants to be this cool aloof person who has everything at his fingertips so that he can solely focus on academia if he wishes to for no reason other than curiosity and i think it's also really interesting that as soon as 
as soon as something doesn't go his way, he's very much like the others think. So as yeah. soon as he realizes that Camilla is not going to play the game how he wants her to play it anymore, it's like what three sentences, but they are the most horrendous three mm-hmm. sentences that I, <laughs> I just wasn't expecting it, and I read no. it before, and for some somehow I'd forgotten it. He he has some very violent thoughts towards Camilla, and it's not nice. No, we've never really seen that violence from he's a very passive character yeah he generally he he lets things happen to him and he he does what he's told by henry i think it is a really big sign of like the fracturing that he experienced as like an after effect of the trauma yeah of bunny's murder and i think it also shows that even he's capable of at least thinking in the same violent ways that they have thought and acted. Yeah. When Henry does explain why this murder of the farmer happened and what happened, he literally says to Henry, it doesn't matter. I think Henry picks up picks up on that with um, Richard as well, because uh, towards the end of the book, doesn't Henry say to Richard something along the lines of, you don't, so you don't emote very well, essentially, yeah. what he says. He basically says, you know, you don't make connections with people. You don't have feelings. Yeah. Feelings for people. So surely you must understand what I have been reaching for. And Richard argues against that. But you don't really see him have strong feelings for anyone other than Henry and Camilla. And those feelings are more obsession than anything else, I think. I think Bunny as a character is like an overblown and exaggerated version of everything that the high class white rich man is posed as in this book. And he's... uh, He's racist. He's homophobic. He's one of the boys. And yet he's also weirdly charming. It's annoying, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And he he also makes people who don't know him think he's great. Because on the surface he's loud and funny and Yeah. It's interesting that Bunny gets the first spoken words in the book. And it begins for him like it, it begins where it ends for him. I can't remember what his first words are. I think it's something like what are you guys doing here? But in Bunny's defence, he is very much a product of his upbringing, like they oh, all yeah. are. But whereas yeah. they were allowed and even encouraged to kind of explore these uh, academic avenues, or and Bunny was shoved into it mm. and told this is what you should do. Yeah, you think he's dyslexic, isn't it? I think that's. I think so. Yeah, I don't think it's ex- explicitly said, but I think it's quite obvious. He always needs help with his spelling and his writing and his essays. Hmm. And he's a, he was a really good really good at drawing. I think yes. even Henry says that he should have been an artist. kind of guided down that route rather than yeah. But he's expected to be a banker like his dad is. Yeah, and I find he it is gloriously annoying though. As a as a written character, the fact that he's playing the marching tunes at like two in the morning. Can you imagine that as somebody in your dorm? That would be enough to want to kill him. The thought would cross your mind at 3am, wouldn't it? It would. Bunny's obviously a really important character because he's the whole reason that they have an issue. I mean, an issue is putting it blandly because yep. <laughs> it's murder. But I mean, if it wasn't for Bunny's insistence, I strongly doubt whether Richard would have actually ever entered their fold properly. He saw how much it annoyed Henry at first. And anything oh, that's going to annoy Henry, Bunny's going to do more. I imagine he was the type of character to act out and do things to get attention. Definitely. And I think that's basically just an extension of that. And instead of Mm. applying to Henry in the ways that Henry would respect, he he isn't that person. No. He does what he knows. 
Yeah, he draws uncomfortable truths out. He brings out everybody's dirty laundry for everyone to see. Mm-hmm. He likes to catch someone in a lie or you know ridicule them for an aspect that they would rather other people didn't know. I think it does take away the fact that he is a human in some ways until that letter resurfaces and to Julian and we're like oh actually this was a real person who was scared that his best friends murdered someone but I also don't have a huge amount of sympathy for him as a character yeah it makes it he makes it very difficult for you to be sympathetic towards towards him and we're also seeing it through the narrative of one of the people that murdered him so yeah exactly he would be shaping him in a way that justifies that murder this book has lots of problematic aspects there are lots of criticisms but it's wild and clever and compelling and so rich and i do think you can acknowledge those criticisms and still love a text and i love the secret history i miss it already yeah it's (laughs) it's such an all-encompassing world especially when you read it all 630 pages in five days like we did this week it attaches itself to you doesn't it yeah and there's still that nostalgia there's still that longing for that academic environment even though you've seen the catastrophic fallout of it it's a -a one-of-a-kind novel and it's going to be the launch pad for the rest of this podcast we have books that align closely to the secret history we have those that seemingly have no connection But actually, they may be more similar than we first thought. And our next episode is going to be focused on If We Were Villains by Emma L. Rio, which we think is the natural successor to The Secret History. If We Were Villains was published in 2017 and is about Oliver Marks, who is a young actor studying Shakespeare in an elite arts conservatory when Oliver has served 10 years for the murder of one of his closest friends, a murder that he may or may not have committed. And on the day he's released, the detective who put him in prison, who has always known that there is something else that he doesn't know about this case, has come to find out, finally, what really happened. So join us for our next episode, where we'll be looking at If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. I hope you've enjoyed our exploration of the secret history, and we'll see you next time. Bye.